Hi, readers. Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. Clancy Martin is the acclaimed author of the novel How to Sell, numerous books on philosophy, and the viral essay I'm Still Here. He is a survivor of more than 10 suicide attempts and a recovering alcoholic. His new book, How Not to Kill Yourself, is an intimate, insightful, and at times even humorous exploration of why the thought of death is so compulsive for some, while demonstrating that there's always another solution. Now let's join editor Denise Oswald in conversation with author Clancy Martin. I'm Denise Oswald, uh, editorial director at Pantheon, and I'm here with Clancy Martin to talk about how not to kill yourself. And, you know, Clancy, I was thinking about it. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me when I was editing the book was when you mentioned um, that you went through, I think, one of your worst times, you said, during the publication of How to Sell. And that was interesting for me because we didn't know each other at the time, but I had the benefit of watching that publication from the front row because I worked at the same publishing house. And I remember all the enthusiasm around that book leading up to its release and the great response it got um, from the critics when it was published. So it was particularly eye-opening to me to learn what a tough time that was for you and the pressure and the expectations you put on yourself. And it reminded me of something else you say in the book. You talk about depression hiding in plain sight and how suicide does too. And I thought, well, there, there it was right there. Yet I don't know that anyone at the house knew um, what you were going through. And I don't know if at that time you'd been as open um, about your history as you are now. So I guess where I want to start, that's a long way of saying, you know, what moved you to start sharing your experiences with people? Sure. Um, yeah, no, I was not as open at that time. And I remember um, an interview that I did, I think, for Newsweek and uh, about that, that novel. And then after the interview, I felt like I had somehow been dishonest because I had just been going through I think I was in the interview painting kind of a sunny portrait of, you know, my um, situation or whatever. And um, and then I remember calling the interviewer back and saying, you know, I wanted to let you know that I've just been through this very rough time and I'm still kind of in it. And I just wanted to be honest about that. Um, and uh, but. I certainly wasn't going into, as I have in this book, the, the kind of the whole history of my um, uh, various struggles with mental health and particularly with suicidal uh, And how it, ha- how it came to be, honestly, was that an editor for a magazine got in touch with me and wanted me to write a piece, a long piece they had requested that was, um, you know, about some personal experience of mine. And I, I didn't really want to do a travel piece. And I um, thought about, well, what would be something that would be interesting? And um, I, I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to talk about um, some of the time I've spent in psychiatric hospitals, because I have passionate feelings about uh, the ways in which psychiatric hospitals or the majority of mental health facilities in this country can be changed for the better and need to be changed for the better. And so I thought this is an opportunity to talk about that. And then um, in the course of writing that piece, the editor of the piece pointed out to me that it was really um, as much or more about uh, my the, the suicide that had that led to the particular visit to the psychiatric hospital that I was discussing in most detail. And this editor had recently um, dealt with a young family member um, attempting suicide. So he was particularly focused on this question. And he said, do you think you could go into more detail on suicide? And I thought, you know, um, it's time for me to do that, to face head on as a writer, as an artist, and as a um, thinking 
caring person, the problem that really more than any other problem has defined um, my life in terms of the question of um, mental suffering. And that has been this, um, uh, this struggle with suicide. So I took a first attempt at it there in that essay. And, um, but uh, maybe I was still um, holding holding back some material. Also, because if I didn't hold back an awful lot of material, <laughs> the essay would just get entirely too long. Uh, mm. <laughs> so, so um, I told some of, some more of the story of my um, struggle with suicidal thinking in that essay. And then, when that essay was published. Uh, the response was not at all what I was expecting. You know, when I, I, had, I had published an earlier essay about um, uh, my struggle with uh, what we now call alcohol use disorder, it used to be called alcoholism or my addiction to alcohol. Mm -hmm. And although I had a, a very robust response to that essay, I also, there was a lot of condemnation of the essay from within the AA community, because in the essay, I pointed out some things that I thought needed to be changed about AA. So mm -hmm. I was, the same thing might happen with this um, essay about suicide and mental health in psychiatric institutions, that there might, you know, there might be kind of a mixed response and that a lot of people would be angry or upset, but overwhelmingly what happened is I just started getting emails and emails and emails from people who were telling me that they had stories like mine or that they'd been Googling how to kill themselves on the internet, which is a really common thing these days, I guess, and um, come upon my essay and had decided not to kill themselves. And these, and these emails were coming from all over the world um, at all times of day or night. And, and some of these people, of course, have subsequently become kind of friends and, and, you know, suicide, anti-suicide, whatever, however we should put it, companions of mine over email, people who like support each other in this. And, um, and also people from all walks of life. I mean, I remember this one teenager in England who wrote to me, very articulate, sweet kid uh, who was 15 or 16 years old and kind of telling me about the literature that he read and everything. But then he started getting into, you know, his, how he was wanting to kill himself and how he'd come to the essay, but also like physicians, psychiatrists, other writers, journalists, I'm, you know. Uh, you mean they're writing, they're writing about suicide? Is that what he was reading? No, these were these were all just people who were. Oh, these are the people who reached out to you. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These were all just the different people who reached out to me. And um, well, to complete the story, which has gotten much too long, about fifteen years ago or something, I was interviewing um, Bikram Chowdhury, who the founder of Bikram Yoga, you know, and um, doing a profile on him which unfortunately wound up being used in, um, you know, the case against events against him and all that mm -hmm. other issue. But um, Bikram said to me at that time, we were talking about writing and he said, you know, you really ought to try to write something that will help people. And that stayed with me ever since he made that remark, because um, I had never thought about my writing in particularly that way. Maybe it just seemed too ambitious or something. I just thought about my writing as I think most writers do, you know, as like, I'm trying to do the best writing I can, but my, my intention was about really just trying to do the best possible writing. I'd never thought about, well, writing something to try to help people. And then I thought, because of the response to this essay, I thought, you know, this, this is my opportunity to, <laughs> to try and take that advice, which seemed like just like such excellent advice, you know, if mm -hmm. you could try to write something you were proud of that actually would help people. You know, it, it may be too ambitious to hope for such a thing, but it's uh, it's a nice a nice hope to cherish. <laughs> and at, at what point did you realize that maybe that ambition should extend to writing an entire book on the subject? 
after the response, the, all the responses to these essays, then I thought, you know, well, if this essay has helped people, um, I have a lot more to say on the subject. And because um, in this essay, I didn't have a chance to talk about uh, things that I actually do that that help. I didn't have a chance to talk about, you know, about the larger picture of how I understand suicidal thinking to operate as it's operated in my own life. And as I've seen it operate in the lives of people I've talked to mostly before that essay came out, but also since that essay came out. Um, but, you know, to be honest, so much of what I've learned about suicidal thinking, I have learned from people in psychiatric institutions who are also um, for suicide attempts. Mm -hmm. I, say, uh, with all due respect to mental health professionals, I haven't learned very much from um, mental health professionals within um, within those institutions, probably because they're dealing with me when I was in crisis, you know, so they're not really in a teaching mode at that point, so much as they are, you know, trying to figure out how to get me through this crisis. But the people who are in there with you, you can learn a lot from those people because they will be very honest with you in that setting about how they got where they are and how they're feeling and what their disappointments and frustrations are and what their fears are. And, and, and that, that's how I have come to learn about um, both my own suicidal thinking suicidal, the ways in which it is similar and it's sometimes different from other, other people's suicidal thinking. But I, I have to say, in my experience, most people's suicidal thinking, the kinds of suicide I'm talking about in the book, that is um, the sort of suicide when you are, you are really wanting to just get out of the life that you have, get away from the person that you are. And this seems like the only truly effective way of doing it and sometimes the fastest way of doing it. Um, they, I've found these ways of thinking to be remarkably similar. I think one of the things, one of the other things that really struck me in working on the book with you is for you and for many of the people you talk about within the book, suicidal thinking is something that's been with you almost your entire life. And I think from, for those of us from the outside looking in, there tends to be a tendency to think about it as a thing that strikes at a certain moment um, and less as something that you have to, live with. Um, and, you know, it also made me start to think about it in terms of, you know, I'm sure people from the outside looking in also think of it as a thing that needs to be a problem that needs to be fixed um, more in that light than something that needs to be, I think, attended to. Because the way you describe how you've come to live with this in management, it, it feels like something that you have to, you know, attend to in a very close and careful way. Yeah, I, I think, you know, to be honest, when I was a child, I just felt certain that everybody felt this way and that everybody was hiding it, you know. <laughs> and I was sure that my mother felt this way, that, you know, that everyone I cared about felt this way. And when I first was able to talk about suicide with friends of mine, you know, I guess this first happened when I was a teenager, um, I was, I was, I thought that probably the people who were saying, oh yeah, I've never thought about killing myself or no, I would never do that. Or I thought they were just lying, you know, and that, um, that their, their mental reality was very similar, if not identical to my own. And then when I was an adult and I start was still talking to people about this, um, I was very, very surprised, honestly, when I found that there were people who just, you know, there are people I've met who claim and seem to claim with complete sincerity that they have never considered killing themselves. Mm -hmm. And, um, this is, uh, remarkable to me. Um, and my suicidal thinking has changed a lot, especially in the past 10 years. Um, and it, it's, it's gotten to be much less of a struggle than it used to be. But still, I mean, you know, I, uh, I, still it's a daily thing, I think, fair to say. 
um, that I have that it, it, it doesn't have the same intensity every day as it used to have. But um, for years, it was, you know, a very intense um, daily desire. And, uh, and, and when I would, when I would finally make an attempt, it was not um, like some people might think it is where you, there's a sudden burst of energy or you just like suddenly find the will or there's a suddenly this catalyst. It was much more like a relenting. You know, it was much more like, okay, I am just so tired of fighting this desire to kill myself. Now I'm going to let myself kill myself. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm going to stop fighting to stay alive, basically. So, um, and it's true that, well, as you know, um, from editing the book, I, I, think that um, suicidal thinking and addiction, addictive thinking more generally are remarkably similar in their structure and that uh, maybe a lot of addiction is motivated by a deeper um, struggle with suicidal thinking or that at least they have a tendency to run hand in hand and that it is um, probably less often the case in my opinion that a, su a suicidal event Maybe an, an actual attempt may be the expression of a, a, a deteriorating relationship with a substance that one is addicted to. So you're addicted, you're addicted, and then finally you make an attempt. Um, but I suspect um, that the kind, the structure of thinking that actually finally culminates in the suicide attempt probably very often predates the addiction to the particular substance and and um, the, the substance is used as a kind of uh, medicine that works for a time to deal with this deeper problem which is a desire for self-destruction and um, I think that for me, as for people who are wrestling with depression, who may or may not be also wrestling with suicidal ideation, um, or for people who um, have been addicted to a substance that uh, tends not to ever fully let you out of its grasp, like alcohol, some people say cigarettes, I've never been addicted to nicotine, so I don't know, but also people report this with a variety of different drugs. Um, yes, it requires um, that you take as much care of your mental um, well-being. You have to have an ongoing active relationship of care with this facet of your psyche. In just the same way, you have to have an active, you know, it's kind of funny that we even talk about it. it in just the same way that you have to have an active uh, relationship with all these other elements of both your personality and your daily life. I mean, we spend a lot of us more time worrying about our budgets or, and our checkbooks or our, you know, or our exercise regimens or our um, professional lives or our relationship with our partner or, or our parents or our children than, or our friends than we do thinking about our own <laughs> mental well-being and mental health, you know. And this is a real oversight. Yeah. We feels, oh, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but it feels like something that's gotten more pervasive of a problem, that this oversight, you know, that this um, lack of attention and care to our mental health um, has really gotten exasperated during the pandemic. I think it's very much been ex exacerbated during the pandemic for a variety of reasons. One is, you know, isolation. And consequently, when we're isolated from each other, we have fewer um, inputs, fewer people kind of w watching us to make sure, to see how we're doing, to check on us. Um, loneliness has a tendency to kind of be self-reinforcing, you know, as... Um, as I point out in the book, a, a weird thing about being human is that your negative 
emotions, feel very confident and sure of themselves. They feel very true in a way that your positive emotions sometimes do not. So when you're in your negative emotions and the pandemic, I think, had a tendency to reinforce those, you feel like you're in this kind of space where now you're encountering the truth. I think that's part of the problem. A big part of the problem is that the medical resources of the world have been taxed as a consequence of the pandemic. And so as as we know and we read about in the newspapers, you know, these uh, psychiatric health uh, care, medical, mental health care facilities are full. So people are winding up um, dealing with mental health problems in emergency rooms and other places where the people simply aren't trained to deal with mm -hmm. these problems. Facilities are woefully inadequate to deal with these problems. And then uh, the all of the circumstances that have gone around the pandemic have made uh, um, have made it much easier to distract ourselves from our pain than to attend to than to care for our pain. I think um, mm -hmm. you know when you're there's something about the pandemic that feels like panic and as we're coming out of it i'm hoping we can move less and less out of this panic mode but when you're panicking you don't make good decisions and you your your impulse is just to get away from whatever the source of panic is whether it is you know a tiger or a finger in a flame or acute mental suffering or um or disease and someone bringing disease toward you you know when you panic you just want to get away as fast as you can and um, when you're just trying to get away as fast as you can you you don't you don't think through what are the really effective strategies for dealing with the situation that I'm in and um, and so that's when people will make a suicide attempt or that's when people will uh, if they have a problem with addiction will just go to um, the drug that helps them deal with their panic or the many other ways that we have these kind of fight or flight reflexes to deal with, uh, to deal with fear. And, you know, um, the pandemic, it made us all a lot more fearful than we're normally accustomed to being and then we are prepared to be. And so it's not surprising that we all got very panicky and very jumpy and and stopped taking proper uh, care of our mental health. Um, what has it been like, the process of really diving into all of this and writing the book um, and to share some of these attempts that you'd clearly kept hidden from family and friends and colleagues in these pages? Yeah. It's definitely had its ups and downs. Um, and there were stages when, you know, I always had you, I had my editor, so <laughs> I knew going to be reading this. And this was like sharing with an intimate friend who I trusted. So, and there is no better solve for suicidal thinking than sharing with an intimate friend that you trust. I mean, this is the one medicine that'll help almost any suicidal person, sharing with an intimate friend that you trust. And um, it can be very difficult to do. And it can also be difficult for that friend, not only because of what they're taking on, but because you might be reaching out to them and they're like, is this person reaching out or is, is she not reaching out? L, and then you only find out after the fact that they were reaching out and then you're like oh why wasn't I there for them at that time but you know it, it can be really hard to discern but in this circumstance I was writing a book about the subject so I had a captive audience who just <laughs> <laughs> was going to listen to all of my all of my pain um self-pity self-congratulation whatever crazy mix of things that go up go into um the difficulties of being human i had that i had that captive trustive friendly ear so that was very very helpful now thinking through some of these things and you know my um 
particular relationship with my own mental health and um, the difficulties of my mental health, uh, I, I feel like I have a very active role in these things. This, this view is controversial right now in the mental health community. A lot of people feel like um, you really are not the creator of your mental health. And in some sense, you should not hold yourself responsible for your own. Um, I sympathize with that view because I don't think we should beat ourselves up over the fact that we are suffering um, and whatever it is that we are suffering mentally. Mental suffering is a fundamental part of being human. We all go through it. It gets worse and it gets better for all of us. And we, we do need to simply accept that. But I also hold the view that I am um, in many ways a creator of much of my mental suffering and that I am. And, and consequently, to me, this is very reassuring because if it's something that I've made, it's also something that I can manage. It's something that I can deal with, you know, that I can have an active role in handling. So as I was writing about these things, I was confronting some really unpleasant places in my life where I could see that I had done dumb things to make my own life worse mm -hmm. and dumb things to make, uh, to, to worsen the lives of people that I love. And particularly when it comes to my children, you know, that's, that's hard stuff to think about and, and write about and confront in yourself. Yeah. And there were some very um, down times as I as I worked through and wrote my way through that. Um, and but then, you know, as I was coming around to trying to see the whole thing as as a bigger picture, I also had a series of um, insights <laughs> um, that for whatever reason, some of them quite simple that I hadn't made before connections. I hadn't seen before, like connections between the death of my father and the way I held myself responsible for my, for my father's death in a, in the psychiatric uh, facility that he died in and the way that was connected to a, a, a change in my life and my, um, um, increased suicidality that really culminated um, over the course of about 10 years after my father's death and how that grieving process was involved with um, and self-blame was involved with my desire, escalating desire to kill myself and that ultimately mm -hmm. series of suicide attempts in one particularly bad year, um, the year of... 2011 to till 2012, which was in many ways the, the most challenging year of my life. So, and those insights were very helpful um, and helped me to see the ways in which uh, I could liberate myself from some of those things. Now, the question of the world at large, um, whoever chooses to read this book, uh, having the opportunity to see this, um, this portrait of Clancy revealed for who he is, especially when I am at my worst, you know, I'll be honest with you, I'm a little bit, <laughs> bit worried about it. <laughs> I bet, I bet. And you're, I mean, you're a father of five. How do you feel about your children reading this book? Yeah, I'm a little worried about, um, I, my daughter, my eldest daughter, who's 27 years old and is herself, um, uh, you know, a, a, a very engaged with these questions of, um, mental health and, uh, and the care of mental health. Um, she's particularly interested in, um, and the ways our society deals with this with respect to women's rights. But she's been asking and asking to read the book. And I, and, um, I, and she's a little annoyed with me that I haven't let her read it yet. And, and I've told her, Zelie, I know you'll be one of the earliest readers of this book, but I want, before you read it, I want you us to have a conversation about some of the things that you're going to read in there that mm -hmm. maybe don't know and haven't read before that um, and some of them are going to make you sad and some of them are going to make you scared and some of them are going to make you angry, you know, yeah. and 
I was talking with a friend of mine who is a therapist in California, and he said to me about the book, he said, I think there's something in the book that, that you have done that you haven't yourself recognized. And I said, what's that? And he said, um, with this book, you have created the opportunity to break the cycle of this kind of thinking that has made you who you are, this very, very suicidal person. This book is the opportunity to free your children from that kind of thinking. Hmm. And for you to give a full accounting to them of the dad that you are and also the person that you are that will allow them to feel like, yeah, okay, it's it, it's okay to be me and I don't have to go down my dad's, my dad, the, the, the dark road my dad went down, which I needed, you know. Mm-hmm. My father went down a very dark road and had so much promise and, and was, um, you know, kind of this glorious figure in his 20s and 30s, this godlike figure. And um, he, you know, reminds me of, Dick Diver and Tender is the Night. I mean, he was mm-hmm. large life and enormously handsome and women adored him and um, he could charm anyone he pleased and he had everything for a time. Mm-hmm. And then he was dying homeless in a psychiatric hospital, you know, and um, and a psychiatric, psychiatric hospital for homeless people. Mm-hmm. And um, this shadow has definitely been lurking over my adult life. And so with each of my children, <laughs> when they when they come to the time, I hope before reading the book, they will say, hey, dad, I'm going to read your book. And <laughs> and then I'll say, oh, you know what? That's really sweet of you. I appreciate that. And but before you do, let me let, let's talk about things. And then I want you to tell me, promise me if you can, that when you're reading things that are upsetting you in any way, in any of the many varieties of ways that this book may upset them, that, uh, you know, you'll text me or call me and then we can talk it out, yeah. you know? And, and talk- I think that comes back to a really important, really salient point, I think, behind the whole book was the idea of bringing this subject out into the light, right? Of not being afraid of talking about it, that it's the fear of talking about it that keeps people from getting help and keeps them, you know, not that, you know, the talking about it will necessarily liberate them from how they're feeling, but it certainly doesn't help them if they're sequestered with those feelings and they don't feel like they can share them with people. Absolutely. I mean, most people who have these feelings are afraid to share them with people. They're afraid of rejection. They may have tried sharing them with people or they may have shared them with a particular person repeatedly and then encountered rejection. Like, you know, I'm so sick of you telling me this. Um, One of my dearest friends, uh, her, um, her husband at the time had um, repeatedly threatened suicide and, um, he was also the father of one of her children and he came to her and he said, I'm, I'm going to do it. And she told him, you know what? I'm sick of listening to you say, I'm going to do it, go do it. And he went and did it. And, um, uh, you know, it's a frightening thing to share these feelings with people, but it is the single most important thing you can do is to, is to share these. And I, um, I want to add a caveat to what you just said, which is that sharing these feelings with people might be in many ways the most important medicine for these feelings. It, it definitely isn't the only medicine, but it might be one of the very most important medic- medicines. Just simply talking about these feelings with people um, usually will be enough to... Um, to help you start to see the feelings differently. Um, And the reason for that, I think, is quite simple. Very much of our suicidal thinking, if now I'm speaking to people who do struggle with suicidal thinking, very much of that suicidal thinking likely comes from um, some form of self-loathing, self-hatred, some um, feeling in which you, some feeling of, 
a deep disappointment in yourself, of yourself, about yourself, much, much less than a worry about how other people are judging you and much more about how you are judging yourself. And if you can share those feelings with someone else, you will realize that, first of all, you're not nearly as bad as you thought you were. And second, that other people are also dealing with these feelings. People who seem to have it all together don't have it nearly as all together as they seem to have. They're, they're weak and they're struggling too. They can sympathize. They do sympathize. And, and they probably also want and need you around and care about you. And you just don't have the necessary perspective. And you can get that if you will share those feelings. Mm. So, yes, bringing it out into the, into the light, I think, is the single best thing we can do for um, the problem of suicide. And the, the fact of the matter is that um, we, we like to pretend because we're a culture that, that likes to pretend that it knows how to deal with mental suffering now and has all these techniques and strategies for dealing with mental suffering. But uh, we, we actually are woefully inadequate at it. And um, we like to pretend that we don't judge suicidal people. But the truth of the matter is, yeah. is that we still um, blame them for killing themselves. We get very angry at them for killing themselves. We feel that somehow or other they are failures when they kill themselves, that they gave up. There's a lot of, um, in our culture, there's a lot of shaming of, suicide, of people who commit suicide. And it's done in, you know, these sideways manners, but it's very much done. So this is part of what makes people afraid to talk about it. This is also why it's so important to talk about it, because mm -hmm. as we talk about it, then it, it goes, it, it starts to um, no longer have this dirty secret feeling um, that, it, that it has now. We, we have to, we, as a culture, we have to try to be more honest with um, ourselves about uh, how, what it is like to deal with suicidal thinking and, um, and how we might actually help people uh, not to commit suicide. Because we, obviously, we do not want them killing themselves. And um, particularly in certain segments of the society, uh, the rates are just skyrocketing, you know, and so we have, we, we have to deal with it. And things like this 988 number can help and will mm -hmm. help a bit. Um, but we need as, as many different kinds of help as we can get. Yeah. Yeah. I think the way I was thinking about it is, you know, listening to you talk about it was in a way that you have to, obviously you don't want to encourage people but you want to normalize this to the point where people are comfortable and where you're not judging people and where people, you know, I think about people in New York and they have no problem telling people that they're on antidepressants, for instance. And in fact, the, pe the person they tell might say, Oh, what cocktail are you on? This is what I'm taking. I mean, there's just a real openness about those kinds of things, but that the, it doesn't extend to talking about something like suicide. So I feel like if we could bring that openness to suicide, it would go such a long way. Yeah, I think that's that's a very very helpful comparison. Um, the fact that now people will uh, openly talk about uh, well, this was a problem I had with AA, honestly, and I think it is changing very much for the better in AA. But it used to be the case that if you went to an AA meeting and admitted you were on a psychiatric medication, immediately the room changed and you were. Um, this was viewed as some kind of weakness or moral failing on your part, or even you were still a drunk. You were just a drunk who was using a different substance to stay drunk. And happily, it is changing in, in AA rooms, I think. But it, it took the normalization of it in AA, and which also took the normalization in the larger culture. And I think that is so much a change for the better. Uh, recently, um, one of my children... Uh, came to me and she was under a lot of stress and, and um, dealing with depression approaching. And she's like, I don't want to go back on an antidepressant. And I was like, why don't you want to go back on an antidepressant? And she's like, well, it was so hard to get off of it. And I said, yeah, I know, but um, uh, there's, 
you know, don't necessarily have to get off of it. There's no hurry to get off of it. What is it? And she's like, well, I just don't feel like I shouldn't need it. And this is the problem, you know, out there, that feeling of I shouldn't need it, or I would be a better person if I didn't need this, or like, I will be a better person when I no longer do all that kind of, um, the fact that we are slowly transitioning out of that way of thinking about psychiatric help and psychiatric medication is a really, really good thing. And you're right. We, if we can do the same suicidal thinking, oh my goodness, it will help the rates of suicide, you know, because to be totally honest, very few people are going to go out and take their own lives. If they've been open with the people around them that they're thinking about Mm -hmm. taking it's just once you've been open with people around you that you're thinking about doing it, this suddenly, I don't know, it's a, it's a, there's something very interesting about secrecy and freedom and shame and, um, and, you know, the, the dangerous romanticization of self-destruction that goes along with secrecy that makes this particular activity of taking one's own life as a secret, it, it somehow adds to its allure in a, in a very upsetting and frightening way, you know, but if it's, if it's out there, then, you know, also I've noticed like people who previously, including my own wife, um, my, my partner, Amy, when we first met, she was one of these, I've never even thought about suicide people. It's never even entered my head. I would never do it. You know, now sometimes I've noticed as a consequence of living with me for the past 10 years, she'll be like, Oh my God, I just feel like killing myself. Or, oh my, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be like, no, do you want to talk about that some more? And she's like, no, I didn't really. <laughs> I think that's a really healthy thing that she is able to say that and feel comfortable saying that. And, you know, it's really hard, particularly to be honest with people when you're in a really bad space, that's the hardest time to be honest with people. And I think as you point out that if we can normalize it so that it isn't a shameful thing, then when you're, even when you're in a really bad space, you will be able to say to someone who loves you, Hey, I'm in a really bad space. I need help, you know. Yeah. Um, but as I read even the greatest writers on depression, depression, like like Andrew Solomon, for example, um, you know, a- Andrew, you know, he told me when we were talking about this, he said this last bout of depression that he went through, he felt like he was obligated to hide it from his children. Mm-hmm. And I can see why he felt that need to protect them, but I can also recognize that as a very characteristic trait of being Mm -hmm. feeling that need to hide that's part of it you know there's this animal non there's this this part of us that like when um when my dog Seema is not feeling well you know she kind of slinks off into the corner to be by herself and I know okay Seema's not feeling well what's going on with her she ate something that she shouldn't have eaten and that we have that same slink off and hide um in in um in our DNA yeah yeah so, you know, speaking of great writers on the subject, I feel like this is this is a good place to sort of round out the conversation. Um, um, you said yourself at one point um, when we were initially talking about the book that there really hasn't been a major work on the subject of suicide since Kay Redfield Jameson's Night Falls Fast, which is a book that I also know has been really influential um, and important to you. Um, could you talk a bit about the ways in which you think your book either complements that work or builds on that work or how you see it kind of speaking to it, you know, and, and what it's do, you know, for people who read that, like, and then they come to this sort of, you know, why is this the next step? Sure. Um, yes. A Night Falls Fast is um, a book that should be read by anyone who has, um, you know, uh, had any kind of struggle with suicide, whether it's the death of a loved one by suicide or 
um, the attempts by a loved one of suicide or um, someone who struggles with suicidal thinking, you should read Night Falls Fast because it is, it will help you to see that um, suicide is, uh, you know, an incredibly common thing, nothing to be ashamed of or to be frightened about talking about, and that um, we know a lot more about it than we, you might suppose that we do, that it's, it's not some great mystery. There's a lot of smart things we can say about suicide, that we can, we can learn about suicide and be more informed about it. And um, when it comes to sort of an objective account of how the suicidal mind operates, Night Falls Fast is um, the best book on the subject. And, and, and end of discussion as far as I'm concerned. There's no other book that really um, comes close. There are many other excellent, excellent books on suicide, but Night Falls Fast, in my opinion, is the best. What I have tried to do, which um, uh, Dr. Jameson does not as much try to do in Night Falls Fast, I have tried to give a subjective account rather than an objective account of suicide. So she is mostly in that book kind of looking at suicide from the outside in, even though she, of course, herself has attempted suicide. Um, mm -hmm. She doesn't spend a lot of time on what it is like to be um, the suicidal person feeling suicidal and how one might move out of that space. Right. Um, and how one might move in and out of that space of suicidal thinking. She is, she's mostly, um, you know, has a kind of panopticon view of suicide. I, rather than having a panopticon view of suicide, I am imagining the prisoner <laughs> in the center of the, is <laughs> somewhere in one of those cells in the panopticon trying to get out of the prison of suicide and, um, and struggling to get out of the prison of suicide and suicidal thinking. And um, so, yeah, rather than an outside-in account, I've tried to pro provide kind of an inside-out account. So I, I think it is a, a compliment to her book. Now, I hope that in some ways, um, the our thinking about suicide has um, uh, changed a bit since the publication of Night Falls Fast. And certainly I've done my best in my book to address the ways in which um, uh, sort of the, our thinking about suicide might have uh, improved since, um, since Night Falls Fast came out. Um, one of the things that uh, Dr. Jameson wasn't sort of in a position to address as um, thoroughly as I was in a position to address just because the culture has changed in the intervening um, 30 years or so is uh, the, the problem of chronic suicidal ideation. Uh, we, there wasn't a lot of talk about chronic suicidal ideation at that time and the way in which um, uh, thinking about suicide might be sort of continue in in um, in uh, sort of peaks and valleys throughout one's life, and I've spent a lot of time trying to deal with that question and and thinking about that. Um, the other way in which uh, I've, I've tried to kind of add I add to the literature um, complement. Night Falls Fast is that uh, uh, Dr. Jameson is trained as a psychiatrist. I'm trained as a philosopher. So I've tried as best I could. She's a brilliant writer and also brings an awful lot of very, very good literature and history to her writing. I can't praise the book enough. Um, but I've tried as best I could to bring um, some of my philosophical training and philosophical reading into my book. Um, also, some of my own literary influences. We each have our particular literary influences, so I've tried to bring those in. But um, yes, I, I, I think that's about the ways in which I've, I've tried to add to what has already been said so well in Night Falls Fast. Another uh, writer, contemporary writer, living writer, uh, who sh really should be mentioned in this connection is Yi Yunli. Yi Yunli's work on suicide is. Um, is brilliant and uh, also, I think, indispensable for someone who had uh, 
suicide coming to their life in some way. She has her own very particular um, way of approaching the subject, uh, which is um, sort of, she, she she sort of touches it gently with a brush, you might say, and then goes away and then touches it gently again. She she kind of approaches it like a, like a, a painter. Um, but uh, I think people would find her work to be very helpful if they, if they are thinking about thinking about suicide in one way or another. We should probably wrap things up because um, I think they wanted a few minutes from us. I think we've given them 45 at least. Um, but is there anything we haven't covered that you feel like um, you want to leave the reps with? Well, the one thing that I want to say and leave the reps with is that um, someone, there's a view that's popular right now and gaining in popularity that um, suicide is just like um, depression. It swoops down upon you and you are a victim of this thinking. And while you're under its sway, there's really not much you can do, you know, except maybe immediately check yourself into a psychiatric hospital and then and, and wait for it to swoop away. And I do not believe this to be true. Mm -hmm. I think, of course, sometimes suicidal thinking may very well operate that way for some people. And if the best way to deal with it for those people is just to immediately check themselves into a psychiatric hospital or just run to their psychiatrist, absolutely, that's what they should do. But I think for most people who have ever had this thought enter their head, and especially if they have this thought enter their head a lot, you can do things to change that pattern of thinking. You have that ability to liberate yourself and to develop, to, to, to change your mental habits in such a way that suicide less and less dominates your thinking and less and less is a threat to you and your loved ones. And so take that opportunity. And that is definitely what I have tried to do with this book through my own story is to show that I really think that we have this, um, this opportunity to feel better about, you know, to reduce our own mental suffering. And I don't think it's a terribly complicated thing to do. It's just sort of acknowledging that you have that mental suffering and then saying, okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to try, I'm going to try to actually do something about it. Thank you. This has been great, Clancy. Thank you for making the time to do it. Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Aaron Leaf. And until next time, this has been Books Connect Us.